I want to encourage you to take a copy of your scriptures and turn to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. I got at least one fist bump in the back. Psalm 121. Oh. All right. So I want to open with this question. Where do you go for help? Where do you turn when you need help? Hold on just a second. Let me get this wind. When life gets long and trials get wearisome, where do you turn for help? When money is tight and the bills keep coming, where do you turn for help? Where do you turn when the most important relationships of your life just don't seem to be working out? Where do you turn for help? Where do you turn when health concerns continue to linger on and on and on? Where do you turn for help? When you're tempted to abandon everything you've ever believed in. These are questions that every person, whether they're religious or irreligious, ask from time to time. And they struggle to answer. And Psalm 121 gives us a window into the answer for this. It starts with a question. Psalm 121. And the question is this, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? How many of us can say honestly that we've asked that question with a sincere heart? Where am I going to find help? Thankfully, Psalm 21 does not end with a question mark. It starts with a question mark, but it ends with some declarations. Declarations that I think are helpful in a world that's chaotic. Declarations that are helpful in a world where there is uncertainty. There's plenty of uncertainty. Job insecurities like we've never known before. Family stress and families that looked completely put together. These are hard times. From where does our help come from? Let me give some context before we get into the actual text of Psalm 121. And I will not take for granted anything. So let me just say Psalm 121 is part of the book of Psalms. Not taking anything for granted. And and the book of Psalms are just songs that were written to give words to the life of faith. For the ancient Hebrew people, songs meant a lot. And the Psalms were written down in their holy scriptures as a way to give words and verbalize what the life of faith is. And these songs can be brutally honest with their emotions. 
Sometimes you go from one psalm to another and you get whiplash because they're moving in such different directions. For instance, Psalm 75. All I'm going to give you three psalms. They were all written by the same character. His name is Asaph. But I'm going to give you the first sentence from each one. Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. It's giving words to an expression of faith. But just four psalms later, Psalm 79, he writes these, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple and they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Psalm 74, O God, why do you cast us off forever? There are times when faith looks like doubt. There are times when just being cheerful does not reflect the real place of our hearts. And the Psalms gives word to all these human emotions. So that's part of the context of Psalm 121. But Psalm 21 falls within a specific subset of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, or otherwise are called the Pilgrim Psalms. These are the Psalms from 120 to 134, 15 Psalms, and they are written uniquely for the life of the nation of Israel at certain seasons of the year. They were sung, these Psalms of Ascent were sung by the nation as they were ascending to the city of Jerusalem. That's why they're called songs of ascent. The Hebrew word is the song, psalms of degree. They're going up, the degrees of incline. In the scriptures, whenever you see Jerusalem mentioned, Jerusalem is always up. And that's not just metaphorical, because that was where the temple of God was, but it was literally up on one of the highest hills in the southern part of Israel. So you were always ascending. When you were going to Jerusalem, you were always ascending. Thus, the Psalms of Ascent. Now, three times a year, all Jewish men were required and Jewish women could join in these pilgrimages. But Jewish men were required to travel from their home place to Jerusalem three times a year at these major Festivals. We're here on a holiday weekend, uh, Independence Day weekend. We celebrated that yesterday. Well, these three holidays, these three festivals were like that. They were a time to stop what was normal life and head to Jerusalem. They were the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That was a seven-day feast ending with what we most... Uh, commonly known as Passover, and then 49 days later, the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks, uh, sometimes known as Pentecost, and then the third one is the Feast of the Ingathering, which happened at the end of the year. So you had, you had uh, Passover, then you had the uh, Pentecost, and then you had the, um, and then you had at the end of the harvest, the Feast of the in gathering. And the purpose of these pilgrimages 
was so that the Jewish nation could worship God together, that they could experience solidarity with one another, and they would have a reminder of their identity as Jews. Now, one important fact that's going to make a difference in understanding this psalm is that Jerusalem was in the southern part of the nation. Not quite the far south, which was mostly desert, but it was in the southern part of the nation. And most of the population that lived outside of Jerusalem lived north of Jerusalem. So most of the pilgrims are moving north to south. And as the, on these, this three times a year, as they're moving south, the further they get along, they're joining in. These roads are becoming more and more populated, more and more full. And they are singing these songs, these psalms of ascent. As they're making their way up to Jerusalem, the songs would increase in volume. Now, that direction, like I said, is going to make a difference in just a moment. As we look at Psalm 121, and we're going to read it in its entirety here in just a moment, I want you to notice as we read it, there's one word that keeps repeating, and that is the word keep or keeper. It's the word Hebrew word shamar. One of the principles when you study the Bible is that you look for repeated words. When you see repeated words in a portion of Scripture, you know that the author is trying to highlight something. And one of those repeated words here, it's repeated six times in these eight verses, is the word shamar. It's translated in the English Standard Version as keep or keeper, but when we think of keep or keeper, we think of sort of hiding something away. I'm keeping this for myself. That's not the idea of the word shamar. The word shamar is better understood as to protect or to watch over or to make to prosper. For instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Bible tells us that the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, our first parent, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to shamar it, to make it prosper. He wanted Adam to make the garden flourish. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 uses this same word, but used in a different way. This is after the judgment and after he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. It says that God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was to protect it. It was to watch over it so that Adam and Eve could not, in their rebellion, come back and eat from the tree of life. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. You remember when Cain had killed his brother Abel and God said, where is your brother? What was Cain's response? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his shamar? So this is the word. This is the word. It has more than just possessing or owning. It has the idea of guarding and protecting and seeing that it would prosper. And this, this word shamar is used over and over in Psalm 121. So I want to invite those who are, in our, uh, are here today physically to stand as we read this together. If you're at home and you want to join us, I'm going to be reading Psalm 121, all eight verses in the English Standard Version. Psalm 
I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as people are walking on these pilgrimages, they have a lot of time to think, right? They don't have their cell phones in their hands. They got a lot of time on their hands. These are long journeys, and they're walking. They're not driving. Maybe the super wealthy might have an animal to ride on, but for the average person, this was a multi-day journey. And the northern and central regions of the land of Israel are mountainous. So this topography uh, affected what we read here in Psalm 121. Now, when we talk about mountains, we're not talking about, you know, the 10,000 foot or the 14,000 foot mountains that we see, whether that's in the Rocky Mountains or in, say, the... um, uh, areas around the Himalayan region. Most of these are low mountains, high hills, let's say. About 2,000 feet would be about the average, except for the most, the the tallest mountain was Mount Hermon in the northern part of the, the country. But most of the mountains that would have been seen on these pilgrimages were about 2,000 feet or less. I had an opportunity in 1996 to go to Israel and to see the topography, and to see the land, and to travel on the journey of these pilgrims. And the mountains are beautiful. But there's something about the mountains that would have drawn people's eyes other than their beauty. You see, for the ancient Israelite, the tops of mountains were places for idol worship. You read about it in the Old Testament and you hear about the high places. These are the places that before Israel had taken the land, uh, the promised land, that the nations before them had worshipped their pagan gods. It's one of the reasons God told the nation under Joshua to get rid of the inhabitants of the land so that their worship would not be intermingled with the worship of the one true God. On top of these mountains is where the pagan worship would happen. Sadly and regrettably, what happened, though, is that Israel did not get rid of all of the pagan influences, and it began to get interwoven into their own worship, and so much so that there were kings who were actually leading, kings of Israel who were actually leading the people into the pagan worship. Sometimes they were synchronizing it, trying to convinced people that it was actually the worship of Jehovah God, but oftentimes it was just straight up pagan Baal worship or Asherah. Listen, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 4. 
Judah's king, and Judah had some righteous kings. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, didn't have any righteous kings, but the nation of Judah, southern kingdom, had some righteous kings, but Ahaz was not one of them. 2 Kings chapter 16, 4 says, Ahaz sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This worshiping on the high places, pagan gods or synchronism, was so prevalent in the rebellious history of Israel that you can't, even understand, you can't really understand the Old Testament and God's judgment of His own people without it. So when the psalmist in Psalm 121 says, and the pilgrims sing it year after year, three times a year on their way to Jerusalem, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? What this is, this is a dialogue within one's own soul of, am I really going to pursue the promises that the idols are making. Let me explain that. We think of idolatry and statues and things like that as so archaic, it's irrelevant. But those statues to the ancient peoples represented a promise. Baal, the worship of Baal was not because people wanted to worship some wood carving or some stone carving. They believed that behind that image, behind that altar, behind that sacrifice, there was a promise. A promise of prosperity, a promise of fertility, a promise of the good life. See, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is seeking to be fulfilled by the promises of one other than God the God who made us. And we all have an impulse towards idolatry. And there are many kings, sadly, many leaders in ancient Israel, but really we're no different than they are, that would lead the people into this form of idolatry. Idolatry, as we know, is not extinct. Formal idolatry exists within such major religions as Hinduism and Buddhism. It's even woven its way into the Christian forms within Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy with their icons. That would be more formal idolatry, but there is a different kind of idolatry that grows out of a rebellious heart that we all possess. It may not create Exact images, graven images, but it's no less idolatry. It's an idolatrous heart which is seeking to exercise control outside the bounds of what God has limited. This happens in our own day in dating relationships and business transactions and internet immorality and a thousand other ways. This is its own form of idolatry. So the question that the pilgrim asks as he or she considers what the idol has promised, where does my help come from? Am I going to pursue the things that come from this world or am I going to pursue 
something else. That question, Psalm 121 verse 1, is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago when it was written. And the psalmist, in answering that question, makes four declarations. So I want to hit those four as our message. The first declaration that the psalmist makes is in verse 2. And basically is saying that your God is bigger than anything else. Your God is bigger than anything else. Right after asking the question, the psalmist answers, My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from Yahweh, Jehovah God, the one who made the hills. The one who not only made the hills, but made all of the earth. And not only just the earth, but all of the heavens. That's where my help comes from. This past week, my family spent some time, our family spent some time out in the Rocky Mountains. And at one point as we're driving through Rocky Mountain National Park, I literally just told the family, I said, guys, I've got to pull over. Because we are driving over some quite treacherous roads. Glad to be doing it in summer, not winter. But some of the most spectacular scenery, probably unmatched anywhere in the continental United States. And I had to stop and just worship. So I'm standing on the side of the road and we're playing worship music. My daughter Chelsea had going on and I just got outside on the side of the road and raised my hands and just sung as loud as I could sing. As cars were passing, I was like, is anyone, no one honked. It was, I was expecting someone to honk. I didn't care. It was just so awe-inspiring what I was looking at. But as awe-inspiring as the mountains were, what was more captivating is that everything that my eyes could see at that moment just came from a word, from a breath of our God. Our God is infinitely greater than even Rocky Mountain National Park and all of its beauty and all of its inspiration. There were painters on the side of the road painting the the sunset over the Rocky Mountains. And I thought, but there's a God who made this. And He'll make a a different, a, a more beautiful sunset tomorrow. The psalmist in Psalm 121 verse 2 writes that His help comes from Jehovah, Yahweh, the eternal self-existing One. And friends, brothers and sisters, sometimes you and I need to remind ourselves that the value of the promise is only as good as the one who makes the promise. And this is where idolatry tricks us up so much. is because we forget that the idol is dead. We forget that what is making that promise, whether that be in a relationship or a job or whatever it is, it's making a promise. It's asking us to believe in it. And it is incapable of satisfying. But not God. Not God. The one who made heaven and earth. Your God is way bigger 
than anyone else that makes a promise. Second thing I see is in verse 3 and 4. Not only is your God way bigger than any of the others, but your God is aware of the danger. It says here, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Be, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. One of the things, the memories that we made this past week is my three older children and I, we went on a several mile hike called the Perimeter Hike around Uray, Colorado. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And we walked on some paths which were pretty dicey. I mean, you, you slip. See ya. Bye-bye. One time we went behind a waterfall. I mean, it was, it, was some, it was sort of stupid, but it was wonderfully stupid. I mean, it was some of the most beautiful scenery, and, and this path led us right behind this waterfall, but the path is narrow, and I'm tall, and I had to duck under these overhangs, and then it's wet because of the waterfall, and I'm thinking, why am I doing this? And then I look at the waterfall and I remember why I'm doing it because it is so, gravi the gravitational pull is so great, it's so beautiful. We could have continued on the hike, but my daughter, who had, Chelsea, who had done this hike nine months ago, uh, she told us that the remainder of the hike, actually, you had to go along this sort of precipice and hold your hands against the side of the wall and make your way like this so that you didn't fall to your death. What I didn't realize is that if you're going to do the perimeter hike, you do that part first when your legs are fresh. We did it, with the way we did the hike is we did it and they would have been the very end and our legs were sort of like rubbery at that point. Well, here in Psalm 121 verses 3 and 4, the psalmist acknowledges that there is danger in this world. The paths to Jerusalem from the north are sometimes treacherous. And the multi-day trip required that there were overnight campouts. So having a sure footing was important, especially when one gets tired. But what the psalmist tells us here in Psalm 121 is that God, our God, never gets tired. He's not like us. He doesn't get sleepy. In fact, wasn't that one of the one of that one of the rebukes that Elijah had towards the prophets of Baal? He said, "Why don't you guys yell a little louder? See if you can cut yourself a little bit more. Maybe your God's taking a nap." Well, our God doesn't get sleepy. He's always aware. He always is familiar with all of the intricacies of the dangers that we may be facing. And unlike the idols of life, whether they be for ancient Israel or for us today, unlike those idols making their promises, only God can be trusted to preserve us from danger. Now this does not mean that God will not allow us to go through hard times or allow hard, times, hard things to happen to us. Certainly that's not true. You can't read the Bible and see that it's true. God oftentimes allows His children to go through hard times. But it, even in the trials, 
God is aware of our predicament and he protects us. Now this idea of we see in verse 3 about letting your foot be moved or in other places talking about your foot slipping. This is a metaphor that is oftentimes talking about falling into sin. If you read Psalm 38, we won't do this now, but if you read Psalm 38 verses 16 to 18, you see the connection between someone's foot slipping and actually sin needing to be confessed. So what is it saying here? Psalm 121 is saying that God knows, our God knows the dangers, and He knows the dangers of sin. He's fully aware of it, and He is committed to our holiness. And He is committed, as we move through this life, to guarding us in a life lived in obedience for Him. So that's point number two. Point number one, God is bigger than all the other options. Point number two, our God is aware of the danger. Point three, I see in Psalm 121 verses five and six is that your God is as near as your shadow. Your God is as near as your shadow. You see, it's one thing to have a great God but He's too far away to make any difference. Your God is as near as your shadow. Verse 5 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. As these pilgrims are making their way from north to south, And the sun is moving from east to west. Where is the sun hitting you in the afternoon? If you're moving north to south, and the sun is moving from east to west, where is the sun hitting you in the late? On your right hand side. You see what the psalmist is saying here, is that when you are in the later stages, the later stages of life, the later stages of trials, God is still keeping, guarding, protecting you. God wants His people to know that He is with us through it all. And He is near Sometimes as we move through this life, it's only when we are weary and we are the most vulnerable that we recognize that God is so close. When you have your own energy and you can sort of still figure it out, sometimes you don't realize how close God is. But when you have extinguished all of your effort, and you've been walking, metaphorically or physically, all day long, and the sun continues to beat on you, what God wants you to know is He is your shade at your right hand. He doesn't leave you at the end of the trial. He walks with you in the pilgrimage. And then the psalmist reminds us there in verse 6, 
that the one who guards our life, the one who keeps us, is the sovereign one over the celestial beings that he himself created. He protects us from the sun during the day, and he protects us from the moon at night, and he protects his children from everything on this journey. He is guarding us, and so we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear at nighttime when we don't know what is around us, nor do we need to fear in the daytime when we have been beaten down. This morning, I learned about a mentor of mine who had a medical condition that overtook him yesterday. This is a man who he and his wife have walked with the Lord for many, many years and have helped many, many struggling couples. And in a moment, yesterday, he was rushed to the hospital and his life is still in the balance. And if he lives, he may not have the same kind of life that he has had up to this point. He's, he's probably nearing 80. He's not there. And you think, why would God allow that to happen to one of his servants? Hasn't he served faithfully? And what I say in those situations is, one, God doesn't owe us an answer. But two, God does not leave us in our trials. The end of the journey when the heat has been bearing down and you feel like all your strength is gone, remember that your God is as close as your shadow. And the last point that I see here in Psalm 121 is that your God is committed to bringing you to the finish line. The psalmist concludes with the hope that the sovereign Lord has our eternity in mind. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now this would have been especially meaningful to the Jewish pilgrims who three times a year were making this journey into Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem, back home, back to Jerusalem, back home. And God is making a promise here. He's going to allow this to happen from this time forth and forevermore. But one thing we need to understand, if we're going to understand this psalm rightly, is that God's promise of blessing to the nation of Israel was contingent upon Israel keeping their side of the bargain. It was a bilateral covenant that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28 with the blessings and curses is that 
God says that if you do these things, if you are faithful, if you follow my ways, I will bless you and keep you in the land and you will be prosperous. But if you turn away from me and follow after other gods, you will not be allowed to stay in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 28. What it says here in Psalm 121 verse 7, this life that he says he was going to keep, the Lord is going to keep his life. This is the word nephesh. It's the soul. It's not just the physical life. It's the, it's the spirit life that every human being has. It's part of being an image bearer of God. It's that, it's that nephesh. It's the breath that God breathes into every living being. God makes a promise that He's going to keep that. So you have to ask the question, did God break His promise? Did God break His promise? Because since the year A.D. 70, Of course, that wasn't the first time. These pilgrimages have not been happening. The Jewish people aren't marching from their hometown to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. What happened here? Well, let me sort of preface it by saying this. In the Westminster Shorter Confession, question one, what is the chief in demand The answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Israel did not do that. Israel chose not to glorify God and not to enjoy Him forever. And thus they were removed from the land. So we have a problem. Can this psalm have any relevance to you and I if it can be broken by our rebellion, as it was in Israel. And this is where the gospel becomes good news, my friends. Because where Israel failed, God stepped in. God incarnate Jesus of Nazareth comes and enters our world. And for over three decades he would have made this same pilgrimage. At the beginning of his life, he would have gone with his adopted father, Joseph, three times a year. He would have heard these songs. He would have memorized these songs. He would have seen the nation come into Jerusalem for worship. And of course, knowing all things, he would have known that some were doing it in religious self-righteousness. Others were doing it out of a broken and contrite heart. But for over three decades, he would do this. But unlike the rest of the nation of Israel who capitulated to the, in some form or fashion, to the high places, the temptation, the calling of the idolatry that the high places recognized, unlike them, when they asked, where does our help come from? Periodically, they would go to the high places, and so do we. But he never did. Jesus resisted the temptation, the call of the high places. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, even the devil himself said, we're told, took him onto the top of a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of this world, and said, all of this can be yours if you will what? Worship me. And he said, what? You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. So where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And on Jesus' last Passover journey with his disciples, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in John chapter 12, he said this, my soul, my nephesh, my this, this, my life, this inner part of me is troubled. It is stirred up. He says, so what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You see the connection? Psalm 21 says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your nephesh. And then here Jesus is saying, My soul is stirred up. Should I ask God to save me from this hour? Shall I say, ask my Heavenly Father to save me for this hour? Then He says, No, for this very purpose I've come to this hour. And then He says, When I am lifted up from the earth, speaking about His crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. Through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and faith in that crucifixion, people are drawn to him. And Jesus Christ, unlike Israel, who took Jesus took on the limitations of humanity just like Israel, even the need for sleep like all those pilgrims had before. Jesus' foot was never moved. His foot was never moved. Temptation never caused them to slip. In the Garden of Gethsemane, while the others slept out of exhaustion, Jesus committed himself for you and I and said, Lord, take this from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what your will is be done. His foot never slipped. Out of exhaustion, Jesus, always looking to His Father, succeeded where Israel failed. And thus Jesus becomes, hear me, Jesus becomes the true Israel for us. Where all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Him. In His crucifixion, Jesus willingly laid down His soul life. And Yahweh, the one that we read about in Psalm 121, the one who's supposed to guard and keep, Yahweh refused to protect and guard and to keep Jesus' soul because a world of sinners like you and I needed to be redeemed. And on the cross... He laid out His soul and the Father punished the Son of God for all the evil that would ever be committed by God's people. And Jesus drank the cup to the bottom before He said, it is finished, paid in full. It is in His resurrection And it is His ascension to heaven that Jesus becomes the faithful high priest that Israel never could find on their pilgrimage. He is the path 
by which anyone, any sinner who is willing to turn and repent and confess can be made right with God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. And we are invited into a relationship with this living God. This magnificent, huge protector. The one who creates the heavens and the earth. We are invited into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. The one who is bigger than anything else. He is aware of all of our sins. He is committed to us and yet near as a shadow. So my question as I close is will you embrace Him today by faith? Have you embraced Him? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If not, why not? Who else is going to save? But my burden is also for those of us who've put our trust in Him. And on this pilgrimage of life, and we hear the beckoning calls of idolatry, come be satisfied, drink of this well, and we find out it's just a broken cistern. It doesn't hold well, it doesn't, sa- it doesn't hold water, it doesn't satisfy. Where God Himself offers Himself as a fountain of living water. Why do we keep going back to the cesspool? rather than drinking deeply from the fountain of living water. If we will embrace Him, embrace Jesus Christ, knowing that He's done it perfectly and we never will, but if we will cling to Him and be in Him, here's what we know, is that God will guard us. He will keep us. He will watch over us. And He will take us to the very end. And we will find that Jesus offers us everything that the idols never could. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.